Amen. All right, as you are standing, please hear the word of God from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, reading the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, anoint me by your Spirit to preach today your holy word. And let us all respond with attentive ears and minds, ready for him to work upon us that we would be willing clay in his hands. Father, your word is living and active. It does not return void. I preach expectantly for your glory and your good work to be done amongst us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are starting a brand new series today uh, in Colossians. Titling this uh, series, Jesus is Enough, and I'm going to explain what that means uh, today and as we go forward. But Colossians, I can still remember in my sophomore year of college when I uh, first read the New Testament all the way through and became a Christian in the process. Just having this powerful, shocking, mind-blowing experience when I turned to the book of Colossians. And I was fed every day and, and, and savored uh, God's word in, in every part. But for whatever reason, at that very uh, new part in my faith, what Paul exploded about the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done and how great and majestic he is, I just swelled. I was like the Grinch. My heart grew three sizes that day. And it's because of that experience that I am just ecstatic to preach through it, to, to, to savor it, to go through it bit by bit, hoping that that cosmic, all-powerful, all-sufficient Jesus would just delight you as well. Benjamin Glad, in his introduction to the book of Colossians, says this, Its message remains simple and clear. Christ is better. If Christ doesn't occupy the center of one's entire existence and worldview, Paul argues something has gone awry. That is the point of Colossians, that Christ is better. And when you know the true Christ, he must be the center. He must be the gravity of your life. When you recognize who Christ is, you recognize that Christ is enough for everything you face in this world. That Christ is enough to care for you all the way through. That Christ is enough for all of your joy. That is why we are titling this series, Jesus is Enough. 
And in reality, it is also a, a sequel of sorts to our series on Genesis. We spent the first 10 weeks or 12 weeks of the year in Genesis in a series called The Reason Why, where we went through and talked about God's work of creation and all that he had done and how it was uh, broken in the fall by sin. And so after having looked at all of that, I wanted us to go directly into Colossians because Colossians shows us the fullness of redemption in Christ, the recreation that Christ brings to the world. Colossians shows that Jesus reconciles, puts right all things lost by Adam. So as you dwell upon all that we looked at that was lost in the fall in Genesis, that we have uh, brought a world full of evil and suffering, a world full of sin and sinfulness, a world of futility, a world of death, a world of estrangement from God. If that world fatigues you and burdens you, then Colossians is the answer. In Colossians, we will see that Jesus is enough to more than answer every brokenness of the fall. We're going to see that today in the greeting. In the greeting, we're going to see four truths that we learn about God's grace. And we'll get to those in just a moment. Before we do, I want to introduce the letter of Colossians more generally. So as we look at uh, Colossians as a letter... I want to look at, uh, give you just a couple comments about, about its author, about the recipients, and, and about the purpose of the book. First, I want to talk about the author. As we see in, in very very beginning, first word, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, by the, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Here's what I want you to recognize as we go through the uh, letter to the Colossians. I want you to recognize that there is not just one author of Colossians, there is two authors of Colossians. If you're going to really read Colossians, you must recognize that you are hearing from two authors speaking together. The first author is obvious. It is the Apostle Paul. He is writing most likely from Rome in the year 60 or 61 A.D. We discover Paul is an apostle. He calls himself an apostle. That's his designation. That's not just something he has taken on himself Apostle was a technical term given uh, to a select group of people in the first century, uh, first of all, that were witnesses of the risen Christ. When you speak and hear about apostles, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, you are hearing from the eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus. Second, apostle means that they were the authorized representatives to speak Christ's message to the world. If you turn to the book of Acts chapter 9, you will come across uh, Paul's dramatic conversion. And you will read these words in chapter 9 verse 15 that tells us who Paul was supposed to be. These are the Lord's words. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings, and the children of Israel. When Paul announces that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, he is telling us he is an authorized messenger from Christ himself, whom he has seen risen, 
to declare the message that he declares. And so that is where we recognize that we are not just reading the words of a man named Paul from the first century. When we pick up the book of Colossians, or any book of the Bible for that matter, we are also reading God's words. We see Paul saying that he is an apostle by the will of God. God's will superintends and lays over everything that Paul does so that when he takes up the pen in these letters, he is not simply writing his thoughts. He is being so controlled and directed by the Holy Spirit that what he writes is God's words. They are the words of God through him. Paul wrote the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that what we read in Colossians is not just the words of Paul, they are the words of God too. It is important to understand the uh, doctrine of inspiration and revelation because that is how we trust in the Scriptures. The Apostle Peter said, uh, I think, best or most uh, clearly in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 20, these words. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is the doctrine of inspiration. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't parse any more deeply what carried along by the Holy Spirit means except to stress this very clear fact. The words that we read from Paul are the words that the Holy Spirit intended for Paul to write. So they are one and the same, God's words and Paul's words. Peter endorses the Apostle Paul explicitly in the third chapter of his second letter, verses 15 through 16. He says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What Peter does there is he says the letters of Paul are in the same category as the scriptures of the Old Testament, which is to say that Paul writes scripture. Paul's words are inspired. They are God's words. And so it is important for us to grasp that fact as we go into this letter. The, the, the letter of Colossians has the authority of God's word. And so if we want to be blessed by it and benefit by it and experience its fullness in our life, we must listen to it. God's word is being proclaimed. Now let's talk about the recipients. The recipients were told to the saints and faithful brothers at Colossae. So what's Paul doing here? I know these are obvious things, but when we miss, miss these things, sometimes we uh, get off track. Paul's writing a letter. This is, this is mail, first century mail. Uh, and he has written a letter to a church in Colossae. Now, when you write a letter, you don't write a dissertation. You write to a situation. You write to a, a context. You write to a particular people dealing with particular things in a particular time. They are, you write the letter specifically to that audience. And so if we want to understand what Paul has written, we need to spend time understanding the historical context and the situation of 
the Colossian church in order for us to hear the timeless message. So we, we have to recognize that this letter was first written to the Colossians, a specific group of people. Did we, did we put the map in there? Okay. I was going to show you where Colossae was uh, in the uh, uh, Roman Empire. It's in the land of uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, which is uh, called Asia Minor in the scriptures. But uh, it's not very far from Ephesus, another town you probably don't know, Laodicea. Everybody remember where Laodicea is? If you look on the back of your map, you'll find Colossae in the little blurb of uh, Turkey. I had a picture, but it didn't make the slideshow. Uh, anyways, it's, it's going to Turkey. It is a minor city. It's not a, not a big city, not a, a city with much reputation. It's, it's on decline. Uh, we can also say this about the city. It's, it's cosmopolitan. There, is, uh, there are many pagans and, and false religions. There are Greeks and Romans, and there's substantial Jewish influence in the area of Colossae. And so you have all of these different philosophies and religions and worldviews just kind of mashing together in this little town called Colossae. And we'll see how that plays out as the letter goes forward. And one other fact that should be known about Colossians is Paul is writing to a church he's never actually visited. He's not been there. He's writing only as their apostle who has not visited. So we see clearly it's written to the Colossians. But at the same time, there is another audience for the book of Colossians, and that is, that is us. Oh, there it is. Look, see Colossae up there? Uh, so you've got on this side uh, Jerusalem, uh, you've got on this side Rome, and then in that area that's that Turkey uh, back end, that's, um, that's Colossae. All right. Did you ever think that Turkey looked kind of like the back end of a Turkey? But I don't know. Maybe it does. It does to me. Anyways, the audience to Colossians is the first audience, but just like Paul is the first author and God is the ultimate author, we also recognize as Scripture these words are written to us. As Paul wrote in his uh, letter to the Romans, chapter 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. What this is telling us is that God has inspired these particular letters and the particular words not just to be relevant to a one time and one place, but to be relevant to his church for all times and in all places. And this is one of the amazing things that makes me marvel at God's word, is how he was in his providence able to bring up the churches in the first century and the issues in the first century that would satisfactorily supply all of the instruction that the churches from all time until Christ returned would need. That's amazing. I have never uh, found a situation where we can't go into God's word and say he addressed it in this place or in this way. That shows us that God's word is both historical and timeless. He had the whole church of every age in mind in every word he revealed. As we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. So those are the recipients. Now as we look at the purpose, why did Paul write this letter? 
it'll come apparent that there was a false teaching in the, in the Colossian church that is, is hard to parse out all of the details, but the, it breaks down to this. There was a false teaching that was calling the believers in Colossae away from the sufficiency of Christ. They were being told that you need to add some laws, you need to add some practices, you need to add some mystical elements. If you really want to have the experience of a full salvation, you need to add to Christ these experiences or these laws or these rules, and we'll show you how to get there. And Paul is writing to say, no, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to know God. Jesus is enough to be saved. Jesus is enough to live a full life. That is the message that he wants to stress. And here you see the timelessness of it. Is that not the message for us today? Do you struggle with Jesus being enough? Is Jesus enough to forgive you? Do you believe that in your heart? That that thing you can't forgive about yourself, Jesus is enough to forgive. Is Jesus enough to assure you by faith alone you are saved, never to be lost, never to be forsaken, regardless of what you might do in your life, what you might do tomorrow, how you might lapse or fail, that if you Trust in Jesus. He is enough to bring you all the way home. Do you believe Jesus is enough for belonging? Do you believe that if you have Jesus, you are loved and cared for and belong in a place and in a way that no friendship, no popularity contest, no boyfriend or girlfriend can ever compete with? Do you believe Jesus is enough? For your happiness. If I have Jesus, then I'm happy. Can you say Jesus is enough for your purpose? Is living for Jesus enough for a fulfilling life? Or do you have to live for something else? Is Jesus enough to be successful? If you are loved, and received and celebrated in the eyes of Jesus, is that enough to call yourself a success? Or do you have to sell out and sell away parts of your conscience and integrity to be a successful person in this world? Is Jesus enough for your fears to silence them and calm them? Or do your fears continue to rule you? Is Jesus enough for your hope? As long as I have Jesus, I trust everything will, be, will work itself out for the good. So I think the, the message of Colossians, we need it. Week to week, we falter here. And so week after week, I'm going to bring us back and say, Jesus is enough. And I want to start By looking at verse 2 in detail, in verse 2 we're going to see four truths that we learn about God's grace in Paul's greeting. If we just had verse 2, I think you have enough. Let's look at these four truths. We're going to see 
the four truths in uh, Paul's greeting about grace is that one, grace initiates. Second, grace saves. Third, grace suffices. And four, grace restores. We're going to look at that all in these words. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let us look at this first truth about God's grace in this greeting. Grace initiates. The commentators uh, all put in the introduction of their uh, book on Colossians uh, some various uh, form of this phrase, that the town of Colossae was the most insignificant city that ever received a New Testament letter. Colossae was a nowhere town, like Eagleville, Missouri. I didn't want to pick one in Louisiana because maybe you live there. (laughs) Eagleville, Missouri, 300 people, one stoplight. Colossae was a small, insignificant town, not like Rome, not like Corinth, not like Ephesus. Those places were big and significant, but God has placed in our scriptures his word written to a very insignificant city by worldly standards. And I think there's a lesson in that right there. God's word comes to the insignificant. It comes to the nobodies. It comes to the unknowns. And it comes with great gifts. To Colossae, grace and peace from God our Father. No matter how insignificant and unknown you are, great gifts from God our Father come to you right here. Now, grace and peace, Paul uses that in all of his letters to begin. And it replaces the the Greek form of just saying, greetings. Paul has changed the, the, the Greek letter form so that the first thing you read is grace and peace from God or grace and peace from Christ. This is the first word Paul wants every one of his churches to know. The first word he wants the Colossians to hear is grace to you. This is God's greeting You start this letter and grace from God establishes the relationship. Everything after verse 2 is of grace and for grace and from grace. You can't get into the book of Colossians without coming through God's grace. It meets you at the front door. And I think this is a beautiful construction for, for uh, uh, not just Paul's letters, but for recognizing something very fundamental about the gospel. Grace, just like it does right here in verse 2, comes to us at the beginning. Grace comes to us before the doing, before the deserving, before the seeking, Before the wanting, God's grace just announces itself and comes to us. Look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 1 of Colossians. He says that the gospel has come to you. 
They didn't go out to it. They didn't go calling it in from the highway. We are told that the gospel came to them. God sent it. God brought it. God did the bringing. He initiates the coming of the gospel. And why is that? Because fundamentally, the gospel comes to us, not us to the gospel. Because the truth is that we need the gospel to uh, change our hearts before we can even accept the gospel. As, as the Apostle John says, we love him because he first loved us. And that is what we see with grace being initiated here in the very beginning. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 and 8 about this grace. He says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Who will go up there to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. You see, the grace that God gives requires you to bring nothing to it, requires you to prepare nothing for it. You don't have to bring the gospel down. You don't have to bring the gospel up from death. It has been done. There is no message of do in the gospel. It is simply this. It has been done, and I give it to you. Grace initiates. Grace has come. My question, have you received? Have you forsaken the belief that I do to become okay? I do to be valued. I do to make myself enough. And just received the gospel's done, all of it. The gospel is enough. Second, Grace initiates what we also see in this verse. Grace saves. Paul says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace is the gospel stated succinctly. Grace is God's unmerited favor and kindness that comes to forgive and justify us through Christ. Peace is the consequence of God's grace to us. Because we have had the grace of the gospel, we have nothing else to be afraid of. We have peace with God. And that peace is secure. As Paul will tell us later in Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. Through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, we have the peace that has been made by the blood of his cross. There is nothing that can take our peace with God away because it's been secured by the most precious substance ever known, the blood of Christ. How how, how completely does God's grace save? Look back up at verse 1. What does Paul call the Colossians? 
He calls them saints. First thing he says to the Colossians is, you are saints. They start as saints in this uh, letter. How? How? Saints literally means holy ones. We will read the problems in Colossians, and they are far from holy in their works. And yet from the very top, Paul can say, you are saints, you are holy ones. So who are they? Who are these saints? Is Paul writing to the super-Christians, to those who have been venerated by the Pope or will be? Is he, is he speaking to those who have gone to heaven in glory? Who are these saints that he is speaking of? This is the amazing truth of the gospel. Paul calls just, common, ordinary, simple believers saints, holy ones, not because of anything they have done, not because of anything they will do, but because they are in Christ who has done everything. They are saints not by their works. By their works, they are still sinners. They are holy by being in Christ. They are essentially united to Christ by faith. And and I I think one of the uh, most helpful images of this union to Christ that we have by faith is the union that we see in marriage. Imagine that you had a, a bride who had made some rotten choices and had gotten herself into a billion dollars in debt. But somehow, a husband worth $300 billion says, I'm marrying you. We're going to get married. We're going to be one together. At the moment of that marriage, all of that debt disappears in the riches of the husband. All of that debt goes, is mixed in with the husband, but all of the, right, of the wealth of the husband cancels it out and puts them both in a place of such extreme wealth. That is the gospel. You are united to Christ. You come with a debt of sins, sins worthy of an eternity in hell. And yet when you are united to Christ, all of that is placed upon him on the cross so that it is canceled, paid in full. Your debt is gone. But at the same time, that union means all of his righteousness and perfection and goodness and beauty before the Father is transferred over to you as well. So that by being in Christ, you are seen by the Father just as the Father sees Christ. Righteous. A holy one. And that is the message that we have in grace. Grace saves us. All Christ has we receive by grace. And so I think one of, uh, one of the more clever and I think appropriate definitions of grace comes from D. James Kennedy. He treats grace as an acronym. He says that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Everything that you have is God's riches purchased for you at Christ's expense. And so grace 
saves. Third, grace suffices. Grace suffices. I think it is interesting that the words grace and peace open every single one of Paul's letters. It opens Peter's letters, it opens John's letters, it opens Jude's letters, all of the New Testament letters except one, and you can find out which one that is, begin with the words grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. Look at this. The church in Corinth. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Corinth is a divisive, dysfunctional church. Paul writes to the Galatians, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are a drifting church in danger of, of apostasy. And in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, Grace to you and peace, Paul writes. He writes that to a church that is new and confused. Peter writes to his churches, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He is writing to churches facing extreme suffering and temptation. What does this mean when we see every letter and all of its various situations that we've already said address all of the needs of the church for all generations? What does that tell us about these words, grace and peace? It means these words are sufficient for any situation, for any problem, for any disaster in the church. Grace and peace are the answer. They are the funds that will supply us what we need to prevail, to answer, to stand firm, to become pure. Everything that we need is in the words grace and peace because they begin every single letter and every single situation that God through the Holy Spirit spoke to in the New Testament. That means that grace and peace is sufficient for every Christian in every place and every time. You have unique stories. You have things out of control in different ways that I don't have the wisdom to answer. But I know based on these words that if you rely on God's grace and his peace, they will be sufficient. They will answer and they will overcome whatever you are facing. Uh, uh, the illustration of this is, is right in front of us. Go back to the, the author of the letter, Paul. Paul writes this letter with great joy and passion. He writes it with love for Col the Colossi Colossians. He, he's, he's interested in their situation and their maturity and their perseverance. He spills himself out, giving everything he can to their, their situation. He is selfless and joyful. But where is he writing from? Where is he writing this magnificent letter of the sufficiency of Jesus? Turn to chapter 4, verse 3. He says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of a Christ on account of which I am in prison. These words are written by a prisoner. They are written by one in chains. They are written by one who wonders if he is going to be uh, executed and has no clarity on that question. He just wonders, am I going to die? And he knows that he is there because he preaches the gospel. But he finds in the words grace and peace 
a Jesus that is enough to proclaim him with joy even in chains. You see, grace and peace suffices. He wrote these words to us in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here is what Paul knows. Here is what Paul is calling you to know. In Christ, we are where he is right now. He is seated in the heavens triumphant. In Christ, we are where he is right now. And also, in Christ, he is where we are right now. You are not alone. You have the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ with you. You will not be defeated because you are already right now seated with Christ in the heavens. You are in Christ and grace and peace through him suffices whatever you're facing. Finally, Grace restores. Grace restores. We're told that we have peace from God our Father. The word peace there, because we know Paul uh, has a Jewish mindset, comes from the, the Old Testament scriptures, which translates the, Old Test- the, the, the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is what he has in his mind when he says peace. Shalom is this full-orbed understanding of peace. It means not just no war, but it means safety and security. It means wholeness, absence of of hunger and, and danger. It means complete fellowship and intimacy. Grace and peace are the hopes of the greatest Jewish prayer. If you go to the book of Numbers, you will read what's called the Aaronic Blessing, which you have heard many times. But every Jew would hear this day in and day out, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is the image of grace and peace in the Jewish mind. Intimacy, fellowship, nearness, and protection that cannot be dislodged because it comes straight from God and there is no distance between us and God. That is the great hope and that is where Paul starts every one of his letters that you would have that grace and peace. And that is the grace that restores. And here's why I say that. Remember back to Genesis 3. That chapter ends with sin and judgment. It ends with God putting cherubim with a swinging, flaming sword 
to guard the way that Adam and Eve cannot re-enter the Garden of Eden, cannot re-enter his presence. They are exiled, they are lost, they are helpless, and all of humanity joins in their condition. But Paul announces grace and peace. In the words grace and peace, God is, uh, Paul is announcing God has made the way back. Because of Christ's sacrifice to our sin, God answers grace. To our judgment, God answers peace. And to our exile, God answers your Father. By grace and peace, Paul announces that Christ gives us the great blessing, the great hope of peace with God. Praise God, by grace and peace, we are restored and welcomed back. Amen? So four truths that we learn about God's grace. Grace initiates, grace saves, grace suffices, grace restores. The grace and peace greeting of Colossians is a gospel doorway for this epistle and for our lives. We need grace and peace every day for every situation. So how do we apply these words? By being, as it says, faithful brothers in 1-1 to the saints and faithful brothers, i.e. faithful brothers is Believers. That's the whole trick. Being faithful believers. Believing. What does that look like? It means we start every day turning ourselves to God's grace and peace. Seeking it for all that we need. As Jeremiah says, your mercies are new every morning. We must open our eyes turn ourselves, rely on this day being filled with God's grace and peace. But more fundamentally, you have to receive this gospel. You have to believe you are a sinner who Jesus died for on the cross, that he rose bodily three days later. You need to believe that he is God's son and that he is enough to cancel your debt and welcome you into heaven. If you have not believed in this gospel, you stand outside of grace and peace. And nothing that I have said can be your assurance. So have you believed in Jesus Christ? If so, I speak to everyone here. May these words comfort and strengthen you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Amen.